Well, good morning to all of you uh, this morning here, joining us uh, here and those of you who are online. Um, why don't we just open up in a word of prayer before we dive into uh, the message this morning. Just give this time just to center ourselves uh, on the word of God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful um, for worship, uh, that we can lift our voices and sing these songs about a God who's a way maker, uh, about a God who is just so awesome and wonderful that we can sing a song uh, about just that wonder. Um, Lord, we're grateful to be part of this community, this body of Christ that you have called us into, invited us into. And Lord, uh, for me, I'm just grateful uh, for community. And so we just pray in this time that you would be present. Uh, we know you're present, but God, we just call your spirit to fall afresh uh, on each one of us, that you'd clear our minds, you'd clear our hearts, uh, that as we hear your word, that we'd hear it for what your spirit is trying to say to each of us, individually, but also collectively. And so, Heavenly Father, we give this time over to you. May your word go forth with power, uh, authority, conviction, whatever you want to do, God. We just pray that you would do it uh, in each of our hearts this morning. And so we pray all these things uh, in the awesome name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm continuing uh, this series that Bill started last week. Uh, If you were here last week, we've been through this series called Encountering Jesus. Uh, And Bill kind of unpacked uh, the beginning of it where he he talked about traitors uh, encountering Jesus. Um, That's a pretty strong uh, place to be as a person, traitor. That's strong language. And I'm kind of on the other side of that as we talk about how children uh, have encountered Jesus. And so as we continue that series... um, when you go through uh, the Bible, I was kind of just flipping through some of the stories and uh, the age of some of these amazing, uh, prominent people of faith, uh, and you kind of go through the story, and I was, just, was reflecting on uh, just starting at Genesis and moving way forward, and I found myself looking at these stories of powerful children, uh, not necessarily powerful for what they're doing, but the boldness that they had or the character quality. I look, you look at Miriam, right? The, the edict that Pharaoh has just passed has said, children under two boys got to be done. Uh, and Miriam boldly follows the basket uh, that her mother, mother put together and, and carried down the waterway, and she follows it along. And then beyond even that, as, as Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter, she orchestrates the event that her mom would become the wet nurse for Moses. Like, that's pretty amazing. And some, some estimate that Miriam was only around seven years older than Moses, so she could have been about seven to ten years old. That's a pretty amazing thing for a kid to be doing uh, to Pharaoh's daughter, uh, who could have just said, whoa, there's a baby here. Oh, it's a Hebrew child. Done. Um, but she advocates for Moses' life, and that's pretty amazing. You get to Samuel, uh, probably in the, in the late childhood, early teen stage, hearing the voice of God calling him uh, in, in the temple as he's with Eli, uh, and hearing the voice of God starting to work and move in his life at a very young age. And then you get David. Uh, Timeline is uncertain about his age, but some estimate he was a teenager uh, when he took on Goliath, uh, a young, young man taking on this amazing responsibility and weight of that responsibility and seeing the power of God come through uh, his life uh, that was way beyond his ability uh, or anything to do. He just stood up and followed and said, we are not going to be part of this to a community of people that are mocking our great God. And so he stands up to Goliath as a young man. Just amazing. You get King Josiah, eight years old, when he takes on the throne. He was, out of all the kings of Israel, there were a lot of evil ones. Josiah was a good one. Uh, And you just think of how amazing it is uh, when you look at these children uh, that God has chosen to use throughout the biblical history. Children have prominence in scripture. 
And this is a contrast to the degree that children, uh, culturally speaking, surrounding Israel went through. If you look at Babylon or, or even some of the, like the Assyrians were terrible uh, to the things that they did to people, uh, unfathomable things that we could even think through, but they did these things. But the surrounding culture did not have such a high view of children uh, in, in contrast to Israel. From Babylon to Rome, children had this kind of, you should be seen, but not really heard. You ha- you're here, but you don't really have high value or rights uh, kind of thing. And they had no influence. And in some ways, you can kind of just look at it. They were pawns on a chessboard of what ways the parents, or particularly the father, could use in order to benefit the household. That meant either things like marriage, child slavery, or most wickedly, child sacrifice. God, after rescuing Israel from Egypt lays out incredibly clear guidelines for his people. And within those commands and guidelines, he highlights children who are vulnerable and powerless, and he makes sure that they are not mistreated. And where he specifically condemns this practice of child sacrifice, you get to Leviticus 20, and he actually tells them, you should not be sacrificing your children to Malak. You shouldn't be doing that. That is not acceptable. And he actually says, anyone who does this, like, I will put you out from the people, and worse, you'll be put to death. Like, God takes this seriously. And then you get to the New Testament, and culturally, things haven't really improved under Rome. Rome has some awful practices in place, too. Uh, Commentator Kent Hughes says, Roman law gave the father absolute power over his family, which extended to life and death. As late as AD 60, a son was put to death by just the simple order of his father. That's wild. When you look at the culture surrounding not just Israel in the Old Testament, but the time of Jesus and what he was up against uh, under Roman rule. Jesus' birth even shows this in a, in a stark way as it shows the callousness uh, of, of King Herod and under Roman rule at that time as well to declare all male babies, similar to Pharaoh, right? All male babies to be put to death. Uh, and no one really, it doesn't indicate that anyone really stood up against that. No Roman authorities or officials said, hey, wait a minute, you shouldn't be doing that. They just, everything went along, and King Herod put children to death. It's awful. And when you get to uh, Jesus' three-year ministry, you kind of focus and highlight on that. There's a, an estimate that around 37, maybe more, uh, you get to the book of John, and he's like, we can't write all these things down. It'll be too much. But 37 are recorded in the four Gospels. And of the 37, 27 of those are healings. Whether that means Jesus healing someone physically or, or, uh, or, or spiritually when people are possessed by demons. These are healings. And of those 27, four of them are children. It's not so much the, the number I want to focus on, four out of 27. It's not a high number. But the significance that Jesus would actually take time to enter into each of those stories where children are experiencing pain, suffering, or even death. I mean, you could take Jairus' daughter, for example, uh, in Mark chapter 5. Jairus is a synagogue leader. He comes to Jesus pleading for his daughter's life. He, she's sick. They've tried doctors. They've tried medicine. Nothing is working. And Jairus, kind of at his wit's end, runs to Jesus and says, my daughter is sick. I'm pleading with you. Come heal her. And so Jesus, he says, sure, let's go. And along the way, Jesus kind of gets deterred by this crowd, and there's a healing miraculous event there as well. But in the deterring, while Jesus is delayed, Jairus' household uh, servants and others come to him and say, it's too late. Your daughter is dead. And the crazy thing is, 
when they respond, I mean, at this point in Jesus' ministry, uh, he's gained some prominence. People know what he's done, what's been going on. There's been healings, whispers, rumors of this man Jesus and the power that's happening around him and the things he's doing. And so they know what he is capable of. But when these household servants of Jairus come, they tell him, she's dead. And then they go on to say, why bother the teacher anymore? Don't bother him anymore. Uh, he's got better things to do. Perhaps maybe was their mindset or their posture. It's done. We, it's, it's beyond fixing at this point. But Jesus hears them and he turns over to Jairus and he simply just tells them, just believe, just believe. And so they go. And in the going along, they get to the house. And he, he speaks life into the house. He says this amazing statement. The, the, clearly the daughter is dead. And he says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And all those people who came to report to Jairus and those, they scoff and mock and laugh. What are you talking about? She's sleeping. She's clearly dead, Jesus. But Jesus kicks them out and leaves the parents and some of the disciples with him. And despite their mockery of his power and what might, might be if they just had a moment of faith, kind of simply when he told Jairus, just believe. They didn't do that and enter in. He stands over this 12-year-old girl and commands that she gets up. Miraculously enough, too, she's not slow to getting up. If you read the text, she got up and walked around immediately. She's been dead. Uh, And so that's pretty amazing in and of itself. But she immediately gets up and walks around. What a powerful, life-giving encounter with Jesus. Could you imagine? This is a 12-year-old girl. Could you imagine her response of having just gone through the experience of death and receiving that life-giving breath back to life when Jesus calls her up. Amazing. And even when you look past these, these, uh, these miracles, particularly in healing, if you go to the non-healing miracles, we see Jesus' encounter uh, with a boy uh, who had five loaves and two fish. They come to this, this moment where the crowd is getting large, they're all hungry and they don't know what to do, and Jesus tells the disciples, we need to feed them, you do it. They go and they look and they find this boy with five loaves and two fish. Everything is closed. They have no means of getting food to, sur- to supply for this amount of people. And they bring this boy, five loaves and two fish, No conversation is mentioned between Jesus and this young boy. But regardless of the boy's age or status or even the amount of food that he had, Jesus looks at all and he could say, I can use that. I can totally use that. And the disciples, and I'm sure many of us would as well, would look at that offering and say, boy, that is not enough food. Do you see how many people are here right now? Jesus, like, what are you going to do? And they just watch and wait. And I think about how that young boy must have felt as Jesus prayed over that bread and began to break it and break it and break it and break it. and break. What is going on right now? Could you imagine? I was the one that gave that. That was my bread. That, those were my fish. Look what Jesus is doing with what I gave him. How is this even possible? And I think about how he, he processed that. Maybe he turned to his families and friends and and told them those things. And I can just imagine the childlike wonder written all over his face. I would have been elated and awestruck. I think at a young age to just see what, what just happened. How do we have this much food? This is ridiculous. And I'm sure that boy was elated too. And despite no conversation, as I said earlier, no recorded words, nothing, that young boy encountered a gracious Jesus, who said, it's okay, I can, I, can take the, I can do something with that. This is enough, you are enough, it's okay. 
And he encounters a gracious and miracle-working Jesus who took what small he had and made it great. Not only do we see Jesus' compassion and love for children, but that last example even shows his desire to take what is given regardless of the size, regardless of the age, regardless of the status, and take that thing and use it for his purposes, for his glory. You see, to be used by God is not restricted to those who are older or more mature or who are further along in their journey of faith with God. But it is for children as well who bring what little they have or what we as human beings in our finite thinking would deem little. We would say, oh, that's too small. You can't do that. I look at my daughter sometimes and when she's like, daddy, I'm going to go do this. You can't do that. And she'll sometimes defiantly say, she won't say it verbally, watch me. But her actions will say, watch me. I'm going to do it. And we think sometimes the incapability or the weakness or the powerlessness of children. And God takes all of that and says, no, that is powerful. That is strong. I can use that. And God multiplies it. As Jesus' ministry is shifting towards the cross, we see another profound encounter with children. Three of the four gospel accounts record this. You have it in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18. You can read all those accounts for yourself, but for this morning, we'll be focusing on the one in Mark 10. So if you have your Bible, you can pull that up and just kind of put a thumb in it for a minute. But in the context of this passage, Jesus is in the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, we're told, and crowds are gathering to him as usual. And amidst the moment, these Pharisees come to Jesus, and it says they try to trip him up about a conversation about divorce, and Jesus blows them away with his wisdom. We're not going to focus on that. You can read that. We're going to go past that to verse 13 and 16. But in this passage, I just want you to hear just the context for what it is. What, what is going on? What is, what is Jesus doing? How are the responses and all that stuff? So I just want you to hear it afresh. You may have heard this a thousand times, but let's hear it afresh. And this is what it says, Mark 10, 13 to 16. We have it up on the screen. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Kind of going back to this biblical moment of, of the old, the old uh, ancestry, ancestors like, uh, like Jacob and Isaac laying their hands on their children and blessing them. It was common practice for parents to do this, to bring their children uh, particularly to the synagogue. So it's interesting that they're doing it here to Jesus. Maybe they're trying to get a double blessing, bringing their kid to the synagogue and again to Jesus. I don't know uh, the context of that, but they're seeking a blessing for their children. And here we see them uh, bringing their kids And however, for some reason, I have no idea. The disciples know the heart of Jesus at this point. Like, come on. And yet, in this moment, as they are bringing these these children, innocent children, to to be blessed by Jesus, the disciples rebuke them. They put on their bouncer caps and, and begin to decide who gets time with Jesus and who doesn't. Who's in, who's out. You're valued, you're not. Nah, come another day. You, yeah, you're in. And disciples begin to play this role. Maybe they thought Jesus is too busy, too tired. He's done a lot today. Back off. He can't be bothered with the trivialities of hanging out with crying, whiny kids. Because that's what kids are sometimes. 
It was no simple shoe, go away. Strong language, it says. They rebuked. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine being that parent in that moment. Don't you know who this Jesus guy is? He's got better things to do. And Jesus sees their behavior, and it says he became indignant. And when you read the passage, you, you kind of have to make up for yourself how Jesus might have responded to that. But if I was indignant, it wouldn't be a soft-spoken, it wouldn't be, now guys, that's not acceptable. I'm pretty confident in Jesus' indignation, that was a strong rebuke to his disciples for their behavior, to do something so ridiculous. Why should these children not be allowed? Why? Is my time only for those who are deemed worthy or those who have status? Are children not made in the image of God as well? You can imagine all these things festering up. Let them come. Do not hinder them. That's my take on that passage. I don't think that, well, let them come. I think in Jesus and his frustration with his disciples' behavior, from his vantage point, he would have looked at them and said, guys, you know better. You know better. Let them come. And then we read that Jesus flips the script on their thought on this thing because he's done so previously. If you read Mark chapter 9, in Mark 9, they're arguing. The disciples have gone together. Who's greater? Who's better? Blah, blah, blah. The silly conversation. I can't imagine Jesus hearing all these things like, what are you guys doing? But they're having this conversation and they're arguing about these things. And he, he begins to tell them and teach them, guys, wait a minute now. I want you to hear this. Whoever thinks they are first will be last and whoever is last will be first. And he flips their, their understanding of what it means to be great. And here he uses children as a reminder about what it really looks like. What it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not, that's strong language, shall not enter it. If you don't come to God with the posture that Jesus is indicating here, you shall not enter. And then he takes them up in his arms, these children, lays his hands on them, and he blesses them. Jesus loves children. It's abundantly clear. We see a strong reaction to his disciples, keeping them at arm's length. And Jesus stands up for these children, opens the way for them to be free, to come to him, to not only be found in his loving embrace, but to be blessed by him. Maybe this calls for a moment of, of just brief introspection for each of us. Perhaps a couple questions to ask ourselves in light of this. One to start with, perhaps, is this. Am I being a hindrance to children meeting Jesus? This isn't a question for parents because these disciples were not the parents, right? They were preventing the children. Am I being a hindrance to children meeting Jesus? Like the disciples. Today that might like, one of the, the things that irks me the most, and I speak this with grace over the older generation, but one of the things that irks me the most is when I hear this conversation. Back in my day, and we begin to unpack about how the days of yore were much better than current. For many reasons, I'm sure there's some value to that. But I just want to say, that is one way of hindering the next generation from meeting Jesus. 
Because see, today that might like look down, that might look like looking down on this current generation's expressions of worship, of prayer, of church attendance, and ridiculously enough, the clothes they wear. I get it. Clothing, it's a thing. Don't come naked to church. That's weird. But at the same time, we we judge these outward things when Jesus always says, like, go to the story of David, right? I'm not judging on the outward character. I'm judging on what's inside the heart of this person. Do they have it all well together? Their clothes are rugged and rough. They don't look well, well adjusted, but I'm after the heart. Yes, the outward stuff matters to a degree and a measure. Are we guiding, mentoring, discipling, or are we more concerned about what they're doing on the outside? The behaviors, the actions, the way they talk, the things they say. Yes, I agree. The things that they say are ridiculous. There are some things I'm like, why don't you just say it the way it should be said? And we can be the old man on the porch and say, Arr. that's their language. That's the way they're communicating to their peers in this day and age. And we can get bent out of shape on all these things. But are we more concerned about what's outside than what's inside? Let me tell you, it's a hindrance. It is a hindrance, as I said earlier, to hear back in my day, followed by some examples about why this current generation is not Christian enough. Or that they're doing something wrong, or the way they're speaking, or worshiping, or praying, or whatever, is not the right way. You're doing it wrong. Or, maybe you're not hindering them with your words or actions, but perhaps the lack thereof. There's a story about a man named Coolridge. He was once talking with another man who told him that he did not believe in giving little children any religious instruction whatsoever. His theory was that the child's mind should not be prejudiced in any direction, but when he came to, ye- but when he came to years of discretion, he should be permitted to choose his religious options for himself. Coleridge said nothing. He took it all in. But after a while of this conversation, he asked his visitor to come follow him and check out his garden. So they go out to visit the garden. The man said he would, and Coleridge takes him out where there's only weeds growing in this garden. And the man looked at Coleridge in surprise and said, what? this is not a garden. This is, this is garbage. This is all weeds. This is not a garden. There's nothing but weeds here. Well, you see, answered Coleridge, I did not wish to infringe upon the liberty of the garden in any way. I was just giving the garden a chance to express itself and choose its own production. Perhaps a thought here would be your inaction and spiritual distance is a hindrance. We stand by, we watch the weeds grow, and then we say, oh, see, the problem with this generation, see, look at that thing they're doing. The weed's already grown. Where were we in plucking that weed out and praying over that child and bringing them closer to the heart of Christ? Jesus told the disciples in uncertain terms, get out of the way. Get out of the way. And he entered in. He embraced. He loved. He blessed. Let them come. Don't hinder them with these trivialities. Why? For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. These same kids, by the way, who Jesus blessed in this story, these same kids in this one moment were perhaps the very sweetest, the most precious kind of kid you could be around. Oh, they're such a joy. I don't know what they did when they went back home. (laughs) 
Maybe they punched their sibling along the way, fought over something. Maybe they lied or they stole or they disobeyed their parents. Jesus knew they were humans. He knew their humanity, their inability to achieve perfection, and yet he blessed them anyways. He didn't hold back his love until they reached some sort of unattainable level. Once you get up here, then, then I'll bless you. He blesses them as they are for who they were, faults and all. Are you being a hindrance? Or maybe a secondary question is, am I fostering kingdom-building pathways for them to meet Jesus? How's your mentoring? How's your discipling? Your care, your love? your compassion for these children, this younger generation? How's your Christ-likeness in these ways? And now I'm not speaking to achieving perfection in these relational contexts, right? It's going to be messy. I work with students. It's messy. <laughs> it's not perfect. I don't strive for perfect perfection. I strive for authenticity. Just make the effort the attempt to make it, and the attempt being made in the going along, in the struggle, in the understanding, in the reaching out, finding various ways to have gospel-centered, Christ-like conversations, pointing them to Jesus. Or even just doing simple gestures. Hey, I was thinking of you and I, I got you this thing. Whatever. Bless. I can't speak to this issue for each and every single one of you. As a parent, I, I have a broader view. I know I have my kids and the responsibility of that, but I think about kids broadly. Don't do this well. I'm not perfect. But I love pointing people to Jesus. I love pointing kids, teens, to Jesus. The Spirit will work in your life either way. Because in this context, just reiterating again, it wasn't outsiders who were keeping the children out. It wasn't outsiders. It wasn't the Pharisees, though they probably had a role to play. In this context, it was those whom Jesus called, keeping those kids out. It was Jesus' very own, the ones he called to follow him. Moving towards closing, I just wanted to point out one uh, observation. What does it mean then when Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, shall not enter it. See, it's apparent that Jesus is not specifically referring to faith. It's part of it, it's interwoven in that, but he's not necessarily getting at the expression of faith per se, the faith that leads to eternal life, the proclamation, right? The salvation sinner's prayer type thing, which is when we die and we're granted access to heaven. Part of that, while that's true, what the kingdom of heaven Jesus so often alludes to is the one we can be part of here and now. You see, we're not waiting for the day, though we certainly are. Paul was, all the disciples were, they were looking, God, when are you going to come back? That's a good posture to have. But in the interim, while we wait, in the now and not yet, we are part of this amazing thing called the kingdom of God. It's not something we're looking forward to. We're in it now. We're in it now. And Jesus often alludes to that. Not just this kingdom of the future, but one of the present. And so it's our heart's posture or attitude that he is actually pinpointing here in the passage. It is to children that Jesus says the kingdom belongs to. 
Now, we can be sure he's obviously not excluding adults. Only kids can come in. No, <laughs> we, can, we can understand that that's not what he's getting at. What he is getting at, though, is that the kingdom is not for those who think they have it all together. That you're perfect, that you've got status or power or privilege, whatever. It's not for that. Those who are wise in their own eyes or those who put confidence in themselves and their own abilities or their own strength, as it were. No, Jesus is not for those. No, the kingdom belongs to those who are humble. But more specifically, it belongs to those who are like children, who are, as Kent Hughes would say, helplessly dependent. That is who the kingdom of God is for. Children need someone far more capable to take care of them. My kids can't. If I, quick story, when I leave my kids for a moment, if you're parents, you know this, you leave them for a moment, there is a bomb going off somewhere. They are not capable (laughs) of taking care of themselves every waking moment of the day. It's just, you have to watch them like a hawk or your house is going to burn down. You can't. Children are not capable of looking after them to themselves in the full sense of that. My daughter, Aubrey, cannot turn on the stove and make a grilled cheese sandwich. It's not happening. They're not capable. And so children can't do these things. And so they need someone far greater and more capable than they are. We are helpless as people. As human beings, we are helpless in that we cannot save ourselves or reconcile ourselves back to God with our moralistic behavior modification. We need to acknowledge that as children, we are helpless to do so. It takes humility to acknowledge that, to recognize we are flawed, sinful beings being drawn in by the love of a holy, good God. The kingdom of God belongs to those who can see that and in humility accept it. To them, Jesus says, we would say to Jesus in that moment, you're right, I am flawed. As I look at who you are, what you've done, and standing in the mirror and seeing my life in contrast to what you've called me into, I'm flawed. I don't reach that bar. I'm a sinner. And I don't come to you with it all figured out in my perfection. I don't come to you trying to save myself because I am better somehow than everyone else. I don't come to you in my own finite wisdom. I simply come as a child in need of a savior who can forgive my sinfulness, pick me up in his arms, forgive me, pronounce blessing over me as he welcomes us into the kingdom of God. See, it's fascinating after this passage when Jesus begins to teach them this this shift in thinking. It's fascinating that in following this conversation, Jesus then encounters a rich man. And this rich man comes to Jesus and says, teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he attempts to do the very thing we're talking about. He's trying to figure out, how do I get in? What's the bar, the rubric, whatever? I want to know what that is, and I'll see if I make it. And he asks Jesus this question, and Jesus highlights the commandments. Well, what are the commandments? And he kind of lists them off. Don't murder, don't steal, the Ten Commandments, all that stuff. And Jesus lists these things off. And then it goes on to say in Mark 10, verse 20 to 22, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. I've kept these since I was a child, basically. And Jesus says in reply, yeah, but you still lack one thing. Sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll find treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, it says he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
opposite to the kind of posture Jesus was calling us to. This man tried to buy his way into eternal life. I've done all the good things. Look how great I am. Look how much money I have. I've, I've got the status, the power, the privilege. And I've obeyed all these things. Why can't I get in? And Jesus tells him of his lack. Still doesn't measure up. How many of us, how many conversations have we had with people that think, when you ask them the question, do you think you're going to make it to heaven? Everyone, almost unanimously, yeah, for sure. Everyone thinks they're going to make it. Jesus says it's not the way. He was unwilling to follow Jesus into the sacrifice of parting with his worldly goods. He could not humble himself and in so doing was left disheartened, sorrowful, and empty. He walked away with his question answered but didn't receive the blessing that could come with it if he had just surrendered himself to what Jesus was calling and inviting him into. The kingdom of heaven is not for such as these. It is not for those who cannot see themselves through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ who cannot admit failures and flaws because they don't want to come face-to-face with reality that regardless of race, status, child or adult, rich or poor, each and every single one of us falls so incredibly short of God's standard for holiness. The rich man wanted to find another standard and he came face-to-face with Jesus' standard and is called to let it all go, to surrender himself in humility and see the better way forward. Jesus pinpoints this again for his disciples in another conversation. So in Mark 9, they've been talking about this thing. You get to Mark 10 later on, and Jesus pinpoints it again because they still are debating. So before they were talking about who's the greatest, now they're talking about, well, okay, when we get to heaven, who's going to be the one that sits beside Jesus on his right hand? Who's going to be the one? And so they're having a, a silly conversation again. I mean, you could think, like, what I said over here equally applies over here. They don't get it. So they're debating again. And in Mark 10, 42 to 45, it's on the screen. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among with you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Powerful. You see, Jesus' encounter with these young children shows us the kind of posture he desires when we come to him. We don't come to him exactly as kids. Kids do terrible things. (laughs) But we come to him with childlike helplessness and dependence Because we recognize there is no other savior, there is no other way, there is no other truth, and there is no other life beyond Jesus. When we choose that kind of posture, we begin to see and live in the kingdom that Jesus invites us to belong in. Whoever does not receive, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's not some far off kingdom we wait for. It's here among us, right now, where followers of Jesus, as we are doing today, proclaim the name of Jesus. And it is there in our world, it is here even now, that the kingdom continues to advance over the kingdoms of this world. Let the children come. Do not hinder them. 
The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Amen. Worship team.